Let's look at the book of Jude. Verse 3. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you sh- that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Dear Heavenly Father, please help us. Um, these words have never been more relevant than they are today. So, Father, please help us to see what it means to earnestly contend for the faith. In Jesus' name, amen. What does it mean to earnestly contend for the faith? Do we contend or are we passive? There's a famous saying that says, those who fail to learn from the mistakes of history are destined to repeat them. That's why I didn't like Philip Schaff's presentation of the way history is to be written. Let's not give any time to Satan's attacks on the church. Well, if you go to West Point, has anyone here ever visited West Point? What do you see when you go there? When you walk in on the walls, there are images of famous battles. And the purpose, what they study in War College or at Annapolis or at West Point or the Air Force Academy, what they study is famous battles and military strategy. And the basis of that military strategy is to know what are the options that my opponent has in battle. What can I expect from them? That's what they learn. In studying church history, what we do is we look and see how has Satan attacked the local church, and how did those people either contend for the faith or succumb to the enemy? You see, what we can find when we begin examining the truth is where we might be lax. I'm speaking tonight on the subject, the death of a church. The death of a church. Now, we have spoken often about the great missionary Isaac McCoy. We have his painting. When you walk up the stairs, there's a painting of Isaac McCoy coming home. And he has been away from his family. He's been in Washington petitioning the government to give the American Indians a place to live so that, he could, so that they can be saved alive, so that he can preach the gospel to them. He gets back from this long journey, and it's so excited, he's so excited to see his family, but he also knows that he's coming home to find out that one of his sons has died. So mixed emotions. And so, if you look in the painting, there's joy and tears on the faces of the people, and the title is A Meeting Never to Be Forgotten. A Meeting Never to Be Forgotten. Isaac McCoy was a great missionary. He was raised in Indiana. He started, his father was involved in starting the First Baptist Church in Indiana, the Silver Creek Baptist Church. He grew up in that church and started the Maria Creek Baptist Church near Vincennes, Indiana. And he was under a great burden for the Indians. So he went to Fort Wayne and started the Indian mission at Fort Wayne. But God had put a larger burden on his heart. So he went and started a mission called the Cary Mission in Niles, Michigan. And he founded Niles, Michigan. Isn't that interesting? The Cary Mission, named after the great missionary William Cary. He then went... He got permission from the Indian agent, and uh, some of you might enjoy this. This is Isaac McCoy, Apostle of the Western Trail by George Ella. Well, thank you. 
So this is the implementing the Chicago Treaty of 1821. The Chicago Treaty of 1821 was a treaty between uh, American settlers and the American Indians. And do you want to know an interesting uh, little tidbit? Isaac McCoy preached the first message, the first sermon of any kind in the city of Chicago. This is a very significant man, Isaac McCoy. But listen to this. The Chicago Treaty of the previous year had been signed and sealed without any real indications of its being implemented as far as Indian missions were concerned, either from the government in providing posts or the board in filling them. McCoy had long felt that it was time that he contacted the government's representatives for Indian affairs to start things moving, but he had been at first so busy and afterwards so ill that he had not managed to look into the matter. Now, often, because of his travels, he, he took one trip to Ohio from Indiana, from Fort Wayne, came to Ohio. And it was during a drought, so the only water that he could find was water that had maybe pooled in the road or stagnant ponds. And that's what he would drink. And so he was sick often. But it says this, The Department of War had now placed the management of Indian treaties in the hands of Lewis Cass, governor of Michigan, with whom McCoy already enjoyed the best relations and was in close correspondence. Now listen to this. Colonel Johnston, the Indian agent, anyone down to Johnston Farm in Piqua? Colonel Johnston, the Indian agent, always addressed McCoy as your friend and servant and showed great respect and friendship to McCoy. Even Cass always dealt personally with McCoy in spite of being in such a high position and addressed him with much esteem. So now what happens is McCoy is dealing with the governor of Michigan and the Indian agent in Piqua, Ohio, and he was in Piqua often. He, was, he has a daughter that's buried in Troy. And actually, um, Patrick Kennedy and I have tracked some of that stuff down, and it's been fun to figure it all out. So what he does is he gets permission and help from the Indian agent and from the governor and starts the Cary Mission in Niles, Michigan, and then goes to start, here's another interesting connection for our church, the Thomas Mission in Grand Rapids, Michigan, founding the city of Grand Rapids, Isaac McCoy. Now here's the connection to our church. Paul and Sam Thomas are the sons of, what was their father's name? K.C. Thomas who's a direct descendant of the Thomas that this is named after. Thomas was William Carey's helper in India. He was from India. And uh, isn't, isn't that an interesting thing? So now we're going to be talking about a church. It's called the, it, it was called the First Baptist Church of Grand Rapids, Michigan. It came out of the Indian mission station that Isaac McCoy had started in 1823. The church came out of it, it struggled up and down for a little while until there, there were people there. At that time, there were no people. When he went, went, there were no people. There were no civilized people. I mean, it was, it was complete wilderness in Michigan. You know, come to think of it, it's a lot like that now. Would you all agree with that? Oh, and Sean is down in the nursery, too. I wasn't able to get her on that. So it was, it was wilderness. Oh, she's right there. Okay, good, good. And she's had a little Indian hairdo thing going, so it can fit right in with the uh, Michi Michigan Indians. So he went up there to preach the gospel to them, and 
He had a hard time meeting with them. He had to gather the chiefs together to get permission to actually get some land to start the mission. And the head chief didn't want to come for different reasons. And so they all decided to start drinking whiskey. And so here's Isaac McCoy trying to keep them from getting drunk. Because once they get drunk, you can't have any kind of meeting with them. I mean, it was a nightmare. It was when you read the stories of what McCoy went through to start this is just amazing. And to see the connection that we have right here with our community. Isn't that a blessing? It's just, I think it's really cool. So, the Indian Station grows into the First Baptist Church. The First Baptist Church moves to another street when they built their building, built a new building, and it came to be known as the Fountain Street Baptist Church. The Fountain Street Baptist Church. They had a great pastor. They had many great pastors. One of them was, let's see, Reverend I. Butterfield. I. Butterfield. And he pastored there from 1867 to 1869. And he wrote, what is a Baptist church? A Baptist church, what is it? And he gives uh, some great information on it. I wish we had time to go through it all. But let me read this. But I think it is a part of our mission to preserve a pure ministry. In a Baptist church, the pastor holds the highest office in the church, and he must be called of God not to rule the church, but to serve it. Amen? But when unregenerate men had found their way into the church, that's unregenerate, unsaved, found their way into the church, they sought to enter the ministry as men enter other professions, supposing that they could learn to preach as men learn to practice law or medicine. And when in the ministry, they began to claim for themselves authority. The best positions were sought, and a minister was to have authority according to the size and wealth of the church he served. And thus, gradually, there grew up grades in the ministry. Then the pastor became the priest, and a hierarchy was fostered. Then legislative authority was claimed. Christ was legislated out, and the civil in... The church and state were joined in unholy wedlock. And we have all the corruptions of the Middle Ages. You understand what he's describing? He's describing that right there. Then he says this. While sanctified intellect and learning are commodities of which we shall never have too much, still we think it is a part of our mission to teach that the Baptist church, listen to this right here, The Baptist church has no use for men for her ministry, however massive their brain, however sparkling their genius, however profound their learning, however burning their eloquence, whose wills have not bowed to the will of Christ, whose spiritual gravitation is not towards His cross, who have not felt in their heart of hearts, woe is me if I preach not the gospel, and who rather than be denied the privilege, would be willing to fare as their master did when on earth. How about that? That's the kind of pastor they had at the Fountain Street Baptist Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Just an amazing thing. When you you read through this, it is so good. Uh, The Bible is to be put into the hands of every individual. Why? Because you can't be a Baptist without a Bible. He's talking about what a Baptist is. And he he is responsible to God only how he interprets it. And no man or body of men has the right to interfere by any coercive measure 
It is the privilege of every man to come to Christ for himself without priest or candles and be God's free man. And although the Baptist church never came out of the Roman Catholic church because she was never in it, yet she is to be Catholic in spirit and in treatment toward all where mere matters of opinion are involved. So it's interesting to see, you know, it says Catholic, that's Catholicity, that's being, that's being welcoming and open and the idea of being, of being accepting, but not for a church member. That was the pastor. His name was uh, Butterfield. He was there from 1867 to 1869. The next pastor was a man named Graves, S. Graves. He pastored from 1869 to 1885. Now, we're going somewhere. And I'll just read you this one thing that he said. My commission has been not to win your applause, but to save your souls. Man, don't you think we need some more pastors like that? That is so good. So far as I have failed in this, my ministry has been poor indeed. You too have an account to give, a responsibility to meet, for the way in which you have received the word of God at my lips, and the profit has been to you. How about that? You understand that, is, that, that the pastor has a grave responsibility before God for how he communicates the Word of God. Amen? But the church has a grave responsibility for how they receive the Word. And that's Acts 17.11, where it says they receive the Word with readiness of mind. Really a great, great illustration. Um, under this pastor, another church was started the Wealthy Street Baptist Church. Now, that's the church that I need to pastor. The Wealthy Street Baptist Church. We're going to come back to that in a minute. It becomes important. That was in 1875. The next pastor was a man named K.B. Tupper. And he had some famous plastic wear that he... No. <laughs> he wrote this. Um... This was in the minutes of the Grand Rapids Baptist Association. Uh, he, he preached a sermon there. This is what he said. The day has passed in the history of foreign missions when, as in the times of Judson, Carey, and Rice, Adoniram Judson, missionary, great Baptist missionary to Burma, William Carey, great missionary, Baptist missionary to India, and Luther Rice, remember, Brother Faggart told us about Luther Rice just recently, how he spent his life raising funds for the work. Luther Rice raised money for Isaac McCoy. All right? So, the day has passed in the history of foreign missions when, as in the times of Judson, Carey, and Rice, its advocates are called upon to present arguments in favor of the divine origin and practicability of the plan for the evangelization of the world. What he's saying is, what most of us don't realize is that when William Carey wanted to go to the mission field, the people said, here's what one of the Baptist preachers in England said, if God wants to win the heathen, he can do it on his own. And he doesn't need your help. That was the strict Calvinism of the particular Baptist in England at that time. Can you imagine that? See, that doesn't even make sense to us now, but that's the way it was. But the reason he is having to say this, that he was the pastor between 1885 and 1890. In the middle of the 1800s, especially in Indiana, there was a man named Daniel Parker. Daniel Parker had some strange ideas, but he was a Baptist. 
And he was an anti-mission Baptist. He didn't want anything being organized. He didn't want people sending missionaries. He didn't want any of those things happening. Now, he ended up being run out of Indiana, and he started the First Baptist Church in the state of Texas. Isn't that interesting? But Daniel Parker caused people a lot of trouble. Uh, John McCoy, uh, Isaac McCoy's father, um, wrote to Isaac McCoy that his brother had died. Uh, William, this is Isaac McCoy's brother, William, had died. And the friends of Daniel Parker had given him great trouble because William McCoy was very much interested in preaching the gospel and seeing people come to Christ and sending out missionaries and organizing churches to raise the support to help those missionaries, just like us. It's a very interesting subject. So that's why he's preaching that. And he goes on to say, Encouraged, brethren, by these marvelous triumphs of the gospel, and firm in the conviction that the future is as bright as the promise of Jehovah, let us do our part, humble though it may be, in this great, blessed, heaven-instituted work of bringing all the world to the feet of Jesus Christ and His redemptive cross. That's good stuff, isn't it? He passed until 1890. The next pastor was J.L. Jackson. He pastored from 1890 to 1896. From Tupper to Jackson, the church was gone. Preaching tonight on the death of a church. The sacrifice that Isaac McCoy made physically. He had children die so that he could start this church. Listen to what I'm saying. People died, literally died, so that this church could be started. The gospel was preached. We think that churches are going bad now. They've gone bad for a long time. Churches die all the time. Why? Because the people in the church did not earnestly contend for the faith. At the beginning, he began as sounding orthodox. He explained that, um, well, he would preach things like this. He preached at the Theological Union of the University of Chicago. Did you all know the University of Chicago was started as a Baptist school? Um, John D. Rockefeller was a Baptist from New York. He gave, imagine this, $75 million in the end of the 1800s to establish the University of Chicago. What would that be, a billion dollars now or something? Crazy. But he wanted to start a school that would align more with his kind of Baptist work. Remember, we've talked about that. Thomas Armitage pastored the Fifth Avenue Baptist Church, and the pastor that followed him was Herbert Fonts. Herbert, Herbert Fonts introduced... Uh, uh, Armitage resigned around 1880. The next pastor is Herbert Fonts. Herbert Fonts introduced the liberal fair to the church, the next pastor. By 1925, you have John D. Rockefeller as head of the deacon board of that church, and they call Harry Emerson Fosdick to be the pastor. Harry Emerson Fosdick preached the famous message, Shall the Fundamentalists Win?, and he is one of the fathers of liberalism in America, one of the great proponents of liberalism. How many of you ever heard Harry Emerson Fosdick on the radio? 
He had a nationwide radio ministry that was very powerful, and he didn't believe in the virgin birth of Christ, the deity of Christ, didn't believe in any of that. That's the kind of Baptist that John D. Rockefeller was, and he funded the founding of the University of Chicago. Dr. Jackson's address before the Theological Union of the University of Chicago on October 2nd, 1894, entitled, uh, and this is when they were still under the, the, people thought that they might be orthodox, Liberty and Loyalty, reveals that he gave intellectual assessment to certain fundamental truths. And his message was called The Secret of Baptist Strength. He says, by loyalty to the Bible, we mean that we are trying without equivocation or any attempt to evade its plain teachings to do what it bids us. We have not asked what, is, what was easy or what was popular. We have sought to know what is the natural interpretation of the teachings of Scripture. We're united and compact in our loyalty to the fundamentals of Christianity. We could scarcely be otherwise, for the essentials of religion lie on the surface of the Scriptures. Great statement. It does not require great scholarships to discover them. It needs only loyal hearts to apprehend them. That's a good statement, isn't it? But he introduces liberalism into the church. How does he introduce liberalism into it? He tolerated openness of opinion. He tolerated openness of opinion. Um, he says this. He commented concerning the true second coming of Christ. Then will Christ's second coming, his glorious entry into our world to live and reign forever, when his followers are able to reproduce his character in their own. Um, he said in a message, Christ's work in the world. When we come to study the mission of Christ to this world, we see clearly that he came to find for every man, listen, he came to find for every man his true self. The best work that any mortal can do for his fellow men is to restore this lost image of God and to bring forth into the practical life of the world the nobler self of his fellow men. So here's the idea. What he's saying is this. Come here, Anthony. What he's saying is this. What Anthony needs is not to be saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. God is already in him. His true self is really good. I just need to help Anthony discover his true self. What does the Bible say about Anthony's true self? The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's what the Bible says about his true self. Yeah, we don't have to work real hard to discover our true self. It comes out all the time. It's not that which enters into a man that defiles him, but that which proceeds out of the man. That's what Jesus Christ said. So the way that I'm going to help Anthony is tell him about his lost and sinful condition, how he deserves to go to hell, but Jesus Christ died on the cross because he loves him and wants to give him the gift of eternal life. Amen? That's the good news. Not him discovering his self. Thanks. Understand, that's all the way back in 1896. The next pastor was a real doozy. His name is Herman Randall. Herman Randall. We're talking about the death of a church. How does this happen? Now, now I've got to tell you. I would hope that if I ever get to the place where I stand up here and say, you know what, we need to stop telling people about their lost and sinful condition. Jesus came to make people better people. Like Mother Teresa, when someone asked her if she was converting, she said, well, if you mean by converting, I'm making them a better Muslim or a better Hindu 
then I suppose I'm converting. So Mother Teresa said. She's burning in hell right now, and she knows the false teaching that she was preaching. But if I ever start saying something like that, we need some men at Grace Baptist Church who would, first of all, it's got to be done biblically. The Bible says, against an elder, receive not an accusation, except in the presence of two or three witnesses. The first thing that you've got to do is got to come and confront me, because maybe I misspoke. Now, I remember I was at the funeral for Jack Hiles, and uh, this guy who's one of the assistant pastors, he's actually president of Hiles Anderson College now, he said, uh, now a lot of you people here think Brother Hiles was your friend. Do you think that he was your best friend? Because he had spent so much time with God that some of God had rubbed off on him, and he was supernatural in his ability to be your friend. I about had a heart attack. Well, I, I, I related that to another pastor, and he said, well, haven't you ever made a mistake? Not that one. <laughs> Wouldn't be possible for me to make that mistake. But let's say I did say something that mind-numbingly stupid. Okay, let's say that I did. Well, then Dan and Jeff and some of our men, Nick and Tony, some of our men would need to come to me. Now, you don't all get together because that's wrong, too, isn't it? What does Matthew chapter 18 say? You come to me. It's the same way that you're, that's the way you're supposed to approach a pastor. You come to me. And I would imagine you all would come to me pretty quickly. Let's do this again. I would imagine that you all would come to me pretty quickly. Because I'm about to start over on what men are supposed to do in the church, okay? It could be a long night. So now you all come to me and you explain to me, Pastor, it sounds like you said that people don't have to be saved through Jesus Christ alone. And I say, that's right. They, they don't have to be. You know what the next order of business is? New pastor. What, what did you say? No, don't beat me with a club. That's that line of church history over there. <laughs> yeah, point a laser at him. That's right. <laughs> the idea is that the men in the church speak for the church just as much as I do. Amen? Amen? So here's what happens. When this preacher starts saying these things, there needed to be a confrontation. Well, actually, there was a confrontation. It's, it was printed in the newspaper. Randall's successor dictated. Grand Rapids, Michigan, August 24th. Special. The Fountain Street Baptist Church has extended a call to Reverend Alfred Weishart of Trenton, New Jersey. The younger members of the church exercising their own free will in the selection of a successor to Reverend J. Herman Randall. The older members asked if Mr. Weishart was a liberal preacher, intending to veto the call, but they were silenced. Mr. Randall ran an institutional church, preferring ethical to biblical subjects for his sermons. One Sunday morning, Colonel Rose, now deceased, father of Henry M. Rose, jumped to his feet in the midst of a sermon and shouted, For the Lord's sake, Reverend Randall, say one word for the Lord God Almighty. Just a moment, Colonel Rose, Reverend Randall replied. Colonel Rose's 
spectacular request mirrored the sentiments of the older members of the congregation. Can you imagine being in a church where somebody had to say, say one good thing for the Lord? That's amazing. But I got to tell you, how did it ever get to that point? Because the members were not earnestly contending for the faith. I'm just telling you, let it never be said that the members of Grace Baptist Church are ignorant of the Scriptures. If that's the case, then I have not done my job. You need to get another pastor. There are a lot of preachers in pulpits that ought to be fired. There's a lot of preachers that ought to be fired. So this Randall, let me give you an example of something that he said. This is a sermon on the Bible I love. Um, and there's so much I could tell you. He said, this is his sermon, The Sin I Know. So let me say once and for all, if any of us are perplexed by this teaching of the theology of the past, of original sin, we need not feel that it is incumbent upon us to believe that in Adam the whole race fell, that in Adam the whole race became accursed, that in Adam all men passed under the wrath of God. This is a bit of theological fiction that has no basis in fact, into which the intelligent man can no longer give credence today. You know what happened if I did that? Andrea would stand up and say, that's not right! Inside joke. Andrea had a dream one night that a guest preacher, right, was preaching some false doctrine and none of the men were saying anything. So she jumped up and said, that's not right! So even Andrea would stand up and... Listen to this. And so I thank God for the evolutionist. I thank God for the light that evolution is shedding on this problem of sin. I thank God that it is dispelling this old nightmare that has been resting on the human race for so many years. I hate all that old idea of sin. This guy pastored from 1897 to 1906. Baptist Church. Listen to this. This was a sermon May 14th, 1905. The hell I would avoid. Now, don't miss this. We all of us know that the popular conception of hell has been of a literal place where the wicked were doomed to spend eternity, suffering the torments and tortures that were simply indescribable by human tongue. It has been the most terrible of all the superstitions of the world. And I say very frankly for myself this morning that I am not such a craven coward as to worship a God like that. If there is such a God, be he imaginary or be he real, I will defy him through all eternity. And if he wants to torture me eternally, he can. But just as long as I am consciously intelligent, such a being as that can never, never conquer me. Now, have you ever heard anything worse than that? Pastor of the Fountain Street Baptist Church. Next pastor, oh, let me say this, The Hopes I Cherish, sermon, The Hopes I Cherish, June 25th, 1905. I do not believe that God has ever been alienated from man for a single moment in the past, or that he needed the blood of any Calvary in order to induce him kindlier, in him kindlier feelings toward man. Now, how many of you have heard of liberal preachers? You've heard of them. 
How many of you, this is really one of the first times you've ever really heard one? See, we can't even imagine how bad it is. We can't even comprehend how bad it is. Um, all right, let me skip through some of this. How many of you have heard enough of that? Right? Obviously, this guy was a reprobate and is burning in hell. Um, amen. Next pastor, A.W. Weishart. Now, now, don't miss this. Please, let me get your attention because this is going to touch home for many people in this room. Dr. Weishart evidently had a brilliant mind and he very effectively sold the Fountain Street Baptist Church on the social gospel. What is the social gospel? The social gospel is you don't need to tell people about their lost and sinful condition. You need to help their physical state. You need to feed the poor. You need to clothe them. That's the social gospel. His social services series of messages on the, called The Social Mission of the Church, listen, was published by the Social Service Commission of the Northern Baptist Convention in 1910. What is the Northern Baptist Convention? Now it's called the American Baptist Convention. First Baptist Church of Sydney. This is in 1910. Do you hear what I'm saying? 1910. Where do you think the people in that church are going to send their kids to seminary? What are they going to learn? That can never happen here, folks. That can never, ever, ever happen here. We must earnestly contend for the faith. Um, I'm not even going to tell you a bunch of the stuff that he said. But they had a building. Here I have, this is from a, a book that was published on uh, what was called The Fall. over here. The tragic fall of the First Baptist Church. Remember, the First Baptist Church moved and became the Fountain Street Baptist Church. Here's a picture of the old building, beautiful building. Uh, it's the old Fountain Street Baptist Church edifice erected in the 1870s, destroyed by fire in 1917. The gospel was once heralded therein. Huge edifice down here. Below, the magnificent new Fountain Street Baptist Church, Cathedral, completed in 1924 under A.W. Weishart, who preached such sermons therein, listen, as the life of Mahomet, Robert Burns, evolution, and presented illustrated travel lectures. You say, you do? No, those are missions trips. One of the stained glass windows pictures Charles Darwin, the author of the theory of evolution. Now listen to this. The gospel of redemption through the blood of Christ has never come from behind the new pulpit. That building was built in 1924. The death of a church. But here's where it becomes a problem. You see, if that influence just stayed within the walls of that church, that would be bad enough. Amen? Grand Rapids Herald, Saturday... May 22, 1954. Beliefs from Baptist tradition. This is the tenth in a series of interviews with the Grand Rapids churchmen, answering questions most often asked them about their denominations. 
The following answers were given to questions asked of Dr. Duncan E. Littlefair, minister of the Fountain Street Church, 24 Fountain. The First Baptist Church in Grand Rapids was established in 1830, an outgrowth of a mission started in 1826. They've got their dates wrong. It started in 1823. But the first church was later named Fountain Street Baptist Church. Is Fountain Street Church a Baptist church? Yes, we are a member of the American Baptist Convention. Our approach to religion comes down through Baptist tradition of free and autonomous church government, responsible to no one, rejecting creeds and doctrines, and recognizing the individual's right to pursue the vision of God as he sees it without being told what he must believe. So far, that's okay. So let's do this. What is the approach to God by members of Fountain Street Baptist Church? Here's his answer. This is in the newspaper, explaining what Baptists believe. It should be emphasized that no one can speak for the members of Fountain Street Baptist Church on the matter of their beliefs. Really? I thought we were all supposed to speak the same thing. I believe, however, that among members of the congregation, the approaches to God would range from believing in a personal God who directs and controls the destiny of man to denial of the existence of any controlling agent. So the members of our church, some believe in God, some don't. Um, My estimate is that the majority of members believe in one God, that God is only true that God is the only true absolute. Did you hear that? There's only one absolute, and that's God. That the goodness of this world will reveal itself to us only through the laws of this natural world. And that community of men is an expression of the goodness of God. Where there is no love, there is no God. What is the approach as to the nature of man by the members of Fountain Street Church? Listen, he's saying what Baptists believe. With little exception, I am sure the majority of the Fountain Street congregation believe wholeheartedly in the goodness of man and his capacity to find the goodness of God. Most of us rejecting the idea that man is born in sin or that he can be saved only through a confession of faith in Jesus Christ and in being baptized. He's saying this is what Baptists believe. It's in the newspaper. So it goes on... um, Let me see if there's anything else that just, it's all horrible, but, okay. What is the concept of Jesus by the majority of the Fountain Street members? Now, this is 1954. Uh, I believe most of Fountain Street's members would believe in Jesus as a great prophet who has been and is a source of much encouragement and illumination. How is the Bible interpreted by the members of Fountain Street Church? Most of Fountain Street's membership, or most of Fountain Street's members, would regard the Bible as a story of the spiritual development of the Jewish people and the origins of the Christian faith. As such, parts of the Bible are of various worth to us. The majority of the congregation would not hold the Bible as the sole guide to the goodness of God, and no one would hold, listen, and no one would hold it to be the literal to be literally accurate. We believe the Bible is a source of inspiration, encouragement, and enlightenment. What happens after death? This is in the paper, folks. What happens after death? Generally, I believe our members feel that what happens after death is something beyond evidence and as such is a matter of personal faith since none of us, since none of the wide range of suggested concepts have either been proven or disproven. I am sure that among our members, whether believing 
there is another life or not. We all strongly believe that we should live this one as though we were living it for the sake of the good itself, not because God is going to reward us in another time. The death of a church. And this is 1954. This church was a member of the American Baptist Convention. Aren't you glad our church doesn't belong to something like that? Can you imagine sending money to an organization like that? Can you imagine preachers taking their retirement from an organization like that? Shame. Shame on them. And if somebody says they're born again and believe the Bible and is associated with that filth, I got more respect for Charles Manson than I have for that guy. So, there was a preacher there in 1954 who pastored the Wealthy Street Baptist Church. And he was rather upset at the way Baptists were portrayed in the newspaper. So, he contacted the newspaper with a group of other pastors and raised so much fuss that they decided to interview another Baptist. So here is the beginning of that. What regular Baptists believe. This is the 11th in a series. The last was the 10th. This is the 11th in a series of interviews with Grand Rapids churchmen, answering questions most often asked about their denominations. The following answers were given to questions asked of Dr. David Otis Fuller, pastor of Wealthy Street Baptist Church. Um... What does a Baptist church believe, basically? The question is, basically, what does a Baptist church believe? Listen to the difference. We believe the Bible is the infallible word of God and the only complete and final revelation of the will of God to man. That there is one God who is supreme and the creator of all. That there is a literal devil. That man is born in original sin. That salvation is given us by God's grace only by being born again. We believe in the bodily resurrection and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Amen. What do Baptists believe about God? We believe that there is one and only one living and true God, the maker and supreme ruler of heaven and earth. We believe in the unity of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, equal in every divine perfection and executing distinct but harmonious offices in the great work of redemption. What do Baptists believe about man? We believe man rebelled against God and fell into sin. We believe, as it says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And as Jesus declared in Matthew 15, 19, for out of the heart of man proceedeth evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. Do the regular Baptists interpret the Bible literally? Yes. We believe the Bible was written by men controlled by the Holy Spirit, and that it is truth without any admixture of error for its matter, and shall remain to the end of the age the only complete and final revelation of the will of God to man. We try to use our God-given common sense in interpreting the Bible. When the Lord Jesus Christ said, I am the vine, the bread of life, we know it is meant in a figurative way. But in the vast majority of cases, we believe the safest, sanest way to interpret the Bible is literally. For example, we believe Jonah was actually swallowed by the great fish as recorded in Jonah. We know that Jesus Christ believed it and said so, and we feel that if He believed it, we certainly can. What do Baptists believe is necessary for salvation? 
We believe salvation is completely and only by grace through faith. We believe that to be saved, sinners must be born again. Amen? What do Baptists believe happens after death? We believe in heaven and hell. Or we believe in heaven and hell as literal places as described in the Bible. We believe those who have believed and received Jesus Christ as their Savior, Lord, and God will go to heaven. We believe non-Christians. Uh, we believe a non-Christian who rejects or neglects Christ will go to hell. It goes on, talks about prayer. It talks about, do you believe Christ will come a second time? Do Baptists believe in original sin? Yes, we believe Adam is the federal head of the human race and that by his fall in sin, and that by his fall in sin has transmitted to everyone the sin he was guilty of. What do Baptists believe about the Lord's Supper and baptism? We believe both ordinances are symbolic, that they are not necessary for salvation, but are necessary for obedience to God after being saved. We take the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Jesus Christ. In baptism, we believe we die, are buried, and raised in Christ. We do not believe in infant baptism. What do Baptists believe about the devil? We believe that the devil or Satan was once holy and enjoyed heavenly honors, but through pride and ambition to be as the Almighty fell and drew after him a host of angels that he is now the malignant prince of the power of the air and the unholy God of this world. We hold him to be, great, to be man's great tempter, the enemy of God and his Christ, the accuser of the saints and the author of all false religions. That's what Baptists believe. Here's what Mr. Littlefair said. It's a little card that they were handing out membership in our church. We would like you we would like to have you become a member of our church. No doubt you have thought several times of joining Fountain Street Baptist Church. Why not become a member on Sunday, October 30th? We will receive new members into our church at an informal service of reception held in the chapel at 10:15 a.m. The process of becoming a member of our church is very simple. It consists of signing the book of membership. We will not question you about your beliefs or ask you to sign or accede to any particular confession of faith. We hold that your beliefs are personal and private. We neither expect nor want the members of our church to hold the same beliefs. <laughs> what are you joining then? We do not want any person in our church, including the minister, to impose his beliefs upon another. We do not seek to create a community of mutual understanding and appreciation in which each person, or we do seek to create a community of mutual understanding and appreciation in which each person will be free to be himself and think for himself. We seek to develop a community in which each will be free to share and will want to share. We seek for the maximum personal fulfillment within the framework of the religious community goodness. That was published in 1956, the booklet that I was just reading. Um, Friday, I downloaded from their website, the church now, it's Fountain Street Church, our history and faith. You ready for this? Our Baptist forebears were devoted to freedom of conscience. They were, right? Which, more than a century ago, 
This church took so seriously, they even questioned whether one needs to believe in God or Christianity to be part of a religious community. Now, how many of you believe the religious liberty of the founders of that church meant you don't have to believe in God? What it meant was, I won't, at the point of a sword, require you to believe in God. But to be a member of the church, you not only had to believe in God, you had to repent of your sin and claim Jesus Christ as your Savior. And then follow the Lord and believer's baptism to identify with the Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine of that local church. It didn't matter if you'd been baptized in another church. It didn't matter if you'd been baptized in a church that was that close. If you didn't come from a church that was just like that one, you had to be baptized to be a member of that church. That's why Baptists have been called rebaptizers for 2,000 years. Years, because baptism is more than just a little picture. Back to our history lesson. Although founded as early as 1842, see, they won't claim the mission. Between 1896 to 1956, Fountain Street Baptist went from being a mainstream Baptist church to being a non creedal liberal church, ultimately severing its ties to the American Baptist Church and eschewing any denomination. It just goes on to talk about a bunch of garbage. Um, the, most of their pastors now are Unitarian Universalists. What that means is that everybody's a Christian. God's in everybody. Everybody's in God. And we're all okay. But I want to tell you the heritage of our lesson tonight. We started with the great Isaac McCoy that great man of God who was willing to die for the faith. Remember, 11 of his 14 children died. And his wife, Christiana, was so faithful while he was ministering to these, to these Indians. She was so faithful that many of those she bore and buried alone without him there. That's their testimony. The pastor that confronted this wickedness, David Otis Fuller, he's best known for being one of the first and most vociferous defenders of the King James Bible, David Otis Fuller. He was saved in either New York or New Jersey, and he was baptized by I.M. Haldeman at the First Baptist Church of New York, one of our great Baptist heroes and one that we quote often and cite often in the journal. You see, it does matter what you believe. Your religious heritage does matter. The people that you read after, it does matter. You see, it was the people at the University of Chicago Divinity School that took Jackson, J.L. Jackson, and took him from a fundamentalist to a modernist that led the way for Randall to come in and be an outright Bible-hating liberal. Those schools have much to answer for. I know sometimes it's got to seem like I'm being awfully pedantic, that I'm being awfully detailed when we are so careful in the way that we word doctrine, the way, the way that we preach and teach. You know why? I don't want us to be the Fountain Street Church. Amen? And here's the deal. If God takes me out of here, now don't worry, I'm not going anywhere. Nobody else, you know, who's going to call me to be pastor? I scare people to death. Sometimes Laura says, what, what, how, how did the people respond? I said, mostly they went like this. <laughs> uh, 
I'm not going anywhere. But if the Lord doesn't return, eventually there's going to be another pastor here. Amen? Um, Dan, come up here for a minute. Fourteen years ago, it was in late October, Pastor Hovestrite had a heart attack in his office. He probably died there. He was put on life support and kept in the hospital for, what, 11 days, something like that? And this church needed a pastor. Dan was one of the deacons at that time. Was there a fight for the soul of this church right then? See, if it wasn't for men like this and people that had a desire for the Word of God, this church could have gone in the other direction. I'd only been here a few weeks, and I met with our Sunday school superintendent, and I said, um, just, just, I hadn't even gotten any reasons or anything yet. And I said, we need to make sure, I, I would like for us to make sure that we're only using the King James Version of the Bible in our Sunday school because we don't want the kids to be confused. They'll memorize Scripture one way there. They'll hear me preach it another way. Let's make sure that we're all on the same page. And he resigned because that was just too extreme. Do you understand the direction that this church could have easily gone by the calling of the wrong pastor? I'm not saying I'm anything special. I'm not. But there are some things that I believe in. Amen? I'm trying to get you to see. This church went from a rock-solid man of God to liberalism in one pastor. It doesn't matter how good of a teacher a pastor is. If he doesn't raise up men in the congregation who know God's Word well enough and who have the intestinal fortitude and biblical fire in their bones to stand against false doctrine, if that's not what is built in a church, that church will die. I know you might be saying, well, what if there are godly ladies? Well, then you're going to have a liberal church with some godly ladies in it. Or you're going to have a church that's run by women. And show me that church in the Bible. Listen, we need you godly ladies to pray for and encourage and support your husbands as they lead this work. We need you godly ladies who are teaching our children and who are encouraging one another and who are discipling. You are vital to this ministry. But the ones who are going to keep this ministry right are the men who know what God said who believe it and are willing to be uncomfortable and confront leadership when leadership violates the truth. Amen? There's no reason for this church. If the Lord doesn't return, if He doesn't come back for 500 years, there is no reason for this church to go bad. Amen? That's why we need a born-again church membership. We need people who submit to the Lord in believer's baptism, who unite in membership with this body, and who speak the same thing, who are trained in the Word of God, who are actively communicating the Word of God, who are supporting the ministry financially, who are supporting the ministry in their time, who are supporting the ministry in their faithfulness. That is the way that this church will keep from becoming this church. This church was founded right. This church was founded right. You know what's interesting? This church came out of Michigan. 
there's a chance. There is a chance for this church to go bad. It will happen if we neglect, if we do not earnestly contend for the faith.